Welcome to the third and final part of my series, Music and the BBC, Radio in the Digital Era, which I take to mean from 1982. And that's because in 1982, the first commercial CD was manufactured. CD, that's compact disc, or compact disc, as some of the Radio 3 announcers called it in the 80s. And the size of CDs, that's to say 12 centimetres in diameter, was determined by the length of music that Sony thought was needed for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the Choral Symphony, previously a work that had been on four long-playing records. But now it could be squeezed, the whole symphony could be squeezed onto one CD, and that was along the lines of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. A good choice uh, in BBC terms, as it happens, because Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is the most chosen piece in the 80-year history of Desert Island Discs. And Sony looked to Wilhelm Furtwängler's 1951 Bayreuth recording, which is 79, uh, 74 minutes long, and 74 minutes became the standard length for CDs. I was training at BBC Radio in Broadcasting House in March 1983 when CDs arrived in Europe. And Broadcasting House's training CD player was actually bought in person from John Lewis on Oxford Street on the morning that CD players arrived in the shops in London. My training had actually begun four months earlier. There I am in the newsroom in Bush House on the Strand, cutting tape. That's what I'm doing there. I'm cutting quarter-inch tape, which we did with a razor blade, and we stuck the edits together with sticky tape. Uh, speech travelled at 7.5 inches per second. Music travelled at 15 inches per second. And that's where I began the training. Note the standard BBC issue headphones and note the very obviously early 80s shirt. Initially, I was working regular daytime hours before the shift patterns cut in. And if I was up early enough, presumably sharpening my razor blades, I'd hear the UK theme on Radio 4. Fritz Spiegel had, for some years, played principal flute in the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. And thereafter, Spiegel made a name for himself as a broadcaster, humorist and composer. On television, Spiegel's hits were the signature tunes for the 1960s police series Z Cars and its spin-off Softly Softly, both of which are based on folk songs. For radio, in 1978, Spiegel was commissioned by the controller of Radio 4, shortly to become controller of Radio 3, Ian McIntyre, to compile and arrange a Radio 4 UK theme. And this became a five-minute montage of folk tunes from around the British Isles, which was to herald the early morning opening of the Radio 4 network. Beginning and ending with the folk song, appropriately enough, early one morning, the sequence contrives to combine pairs of folk songs from the four home nations. So, Danny Boy meets Annie Laurie. The drunken sailor melds with green sleeves and the men of Harlech link arms with Scotland the Brave. Fritz Spiegel's clever counterpoint is supported by Fred Arlen's colourful orchestration. And at the end of the medley, 
there's an early 18th century tussle when Jeremiah Clark's Prince of Denmark's March, commonly known as the Trumpet Voluntary, invades the musical space of Thomas Arne's ruled Britannia in a touchingly amusing way. Anyway, here's the central passage. So you'll hear the drunken sailor combining with green sleeves and the men of Harlech combining with Scotland the Brave. When it was announced that the UK theme was to be removed from Radio 4's daily schedule, there were protests from many listeners. Indeed, three months before the piece's cancellation, an early day motion was tabled in Parliament. I quote, This House recognises the pleasure given to early rising listeners to BBC Radio 4 by the subtle and evocative medley of British folk tunes in Fritz Spiegel's UK theme which has become embedded over the years in the affections of listeners and urges the BBC to reconsider its decision to drop this popular medley. The motion was signed by MPs such as Jeremy Corbyn, Michael Gove, Nick Clegg and Diane Abbott, but to no avail and the Radio 4 UK theme was broadcast for the last time at 5.30am on St George's Day 2006. There have been three new BBC radio music stations this century. The Asian Network began broadcasting in 1996, uh, initially to an audience in the Midlands and then nationally in 2002. One Extra, which features urban, contemporary and black music, began in 2002 and also in 2002 Radio 6 music. Here's a tiny clip from... Six Music's The Freak Zone playlist. This is BBC Radio 6 Music. Right now, it's The Freak Zone playlist. Hello and welcome to The Freak Zone playlist. I'm Stuart McConey and tonight the show has been put together by the experimental electronic musician Christian Vogel and is inspired by his concept of wonky. His new album's called The Rebirth of Wonky. And he'll be along shortly to tell us exactly what he means by that. But let's kick off with a track from that new record. This is Acido Amigo.
In 2007, after five years of broadcasting, there were scheduling changes to BBC Radio 6 Music. Leslie Douglas, controller of Radio 6 Music at the time, said that the changes were intended to attract more female listeners. She claimed that men tend to be more interested in the intellectual side of the music, where albums have been made, that sort of thing. And this clearly brought allegations of perceived sexism on Leslie Douglas's part. Three years later, in 2010, there were even suggestions that Six Music might be closed down altogether, and there were many, many complaints. It's interesting because it was actually the outcry over the threat of closure 11 years ago that really brought the station to my attention. Now, here's what Six Music has to say for itself. So this is a trail of Six Music. It's a weird time for concepts like genre. It's important to try and explore all styles of music. I listen to different types of music because I like different types of music. It's fine to be into ABBA and the Sex Pistols. And there's no limitations, old and new. It's really more about the mood. People are so much more complicated and need so many more things out of music. I just like to listen to some really banging hip-hop that gets my strut on, really. BBC Radio 6 Music for the music fans. It's just like everything you want out of music in one place. Now, what I like about both Radio 6 Music and Radio 3 most is their respective desire to experiment, not all the times, but sometimes. And if they're about the same thing, in my eyes, I thought I could remake that 6 Music trail for Radio 3, changing only the most specific references. These are the things that I think need changing to make it radio threeable, as it were. Got to get rid of ABBA and the Sex Pistols, got to get rid of hip-hop, and we need to change six music. So I'm suggesting the following changes. We'll substitute uh, Beethoven for ABBA. We'll put Sally Beamish in instead of the Sex Pistols. So we've got the contrast there of a dead male and a living female. Uh, we'll change hip-hop for minimalism, and we'll obviously change six music for three. And so this is uh, the Radio 6 trail that I've adapted for Radio 3. Uh, I put a different bed of music beneath it, and I persuaded uh, a few friends, wife and daughter, to help me with remaking a Radio 6 trail for Radio 3, as it were, to try and say that basically the stations are more or less about the same kind of thing, just with ever so slight tweaks. It's a weird time for concepts like genre, it's important to try and explore all styles of music. I listen to different types of music because I like different types of music. It's fine to be into Beethoven and Beamish. There's no limitations, old and new. It's really more about the mood. People are so much more complicated and need so many more things out of music. I just like to listen to some really banging minimalism that gets my strut on, really. BBC Radio 3 for the music fans. It's just like everything you want out of music, in one place. And as my friend Will said that it's really more about the mood. And interestingly, the Radio 3 version is 25% longer, as you'd expect, I think, uh, in keeping with the presentation of the two networks. One of the stalwarts of careful Radio 3 presentation has been Michael Barclay. 
since 2013, Baron Barclay of Knighton. He's been at it for half a century, and Private Passions has been on for just over a quarter of a century. Private Passions is a weekend midday programme where guests choose their favourite music, and its precursor was the 1970s programme Man of Action, or occasionally Woman of Action, depending on the guest. Now, the most obvious differences between Radio 3's Man of Action and Private Passions and Radio 4's Desert Island Discs are there are longer musical extracts on Radio 3, a certain amount of musical analysis on Radio 3, and the classical leanings of the Radio 3 guests. Michael Barclay himself is a musician. Uh, he's the godson of Benjamin Britten and son of the composer Lennox Barclay. And Michael Barclay began his broadcasting career as a Radio 3 continuity announcer and a contributor to Record Review in the 1970s. He later became a presenter of Radio 3 drive-time programmes in the 80s and early 90s. Barclay has presented well over 1,000 editions of Private Passions and has curated the music choices of many and varied guests. Indeed, the signature tune of Private Passions is taken from a composition by Barclay himself. Here are just three short extracts from Private Passions. Firstly, the scholar Mona Siddiqui, then the filmmaker Ken Loach, and then the broadcaster, the late John Peel. My guest today is really rather unusual, but in the best sense of the word, because she's a female Muslim theologian. Mona Siddiqui was born in Karachi, but she moved to Britain with her family at the age of four and was brought up in Huddersfield. We had um, a music teacher who used to play classical music when the children marched into the assembly hall, and um, one of the pieces was this one. And I think I, I took to it because of the piano. Um, and in fact, I remember saying to my eldest son when he was about seven or eight, and he started the piano at school, and he said, I, you know, I don't really want to practice anymore. And I said, you know, just stick with it. It's not cool now, but give it another ten years, it could be the coolest thing you've learned. And he keeps reminding me of that, which is great. <laughs> You've used, Ken, uh, music to great effect in all your films, but actually not classical music. Why, why is that? Well, I think music can undermine a film if you're not careful. Music is often used to add something that isn't there in the story in, in what's on the screen, and we've always tried to avoid that. Yes, one can think of films where it's almost like wallpaper over the cracks. Yes, and really that's cheating, you know. It should be within what's on the screen. And I think music can put another thought in your head or another sense in your head. But I don't think you should use it to recreate what isn't you have managed to get in the film. Now, the next piece you deliberately wanted as a surprise. Well, I mean, I occasionally listen to records that I know, uh, but not very often, because I'm just more interested in hearing things that I've not previously heard, in the same way that I don't read old newspapers. I know that's rather you know, flippant a comparison, really, no kind of a comparison at all. But uh, I would sooner, yes, by and large, hear something unfamiliar. 
So you've asked us to suggest something. You've asked me to suggest something. And I went through various things which I thought might interest you, John. I mean, Ligeti um, and this American composer, Conlon Nancaro, who's, who's something of a recent discovery for all of us, it has to be said. You'll probably feel that it's not quite like anything else you've ever heard before. That's certainly what I thought. That's spectacular stuff, that, isn't it? I'd play that on Radio 1 if I had a copy of it. <laughs> well, well, we'll try and get you one. And Peel did indeed play the music of Conlon Nankow on Radio 1. John Peel's Radio 1 show was a big thing. The Peel sessions were legendary parts of the BBC Radio's music output. Peel and his producer, John Walters, organised over 4,000 sessions which introduced listeners to a variety of unknown artists offering music from punk, blues and folk to psychedelic rock. But those labels don't begin to describe the variety and individuality of the music that Peel and his producer promoted. As John Walters, his producer, said, we're not here to give the public what it wants. We're here to give the public what it didn't know it wanted. A fine aim. Special radio events for me over the last quarter of a century have been the Radio 3 Blanket projects. For instance, Radio 3 broadcast every note written by Henry Purcell during the course of 1995, the 300th anniversary of Purcell's death. A marathon prom concert in July 1999 featured a thousand years of music in a day. I was fortunate enough to pop up as a conductor halfway through the afternoon. The Beethoven experience was six days in early summer 2005, every surviving note that Beethoven wrote. And during that uh, Beethoven experience, the BBC trialled the free downloading of performances of all nine symphonies played by the BBC Philharmonic. There were 1.4 million downloads during that week, and record companies said that it was devaluing music. There was a Bach Christmas 10 days leading up to Christmas Day in 2005. I listened to an awful lot of that. I happened, uh, something I wasn't looking forward to, but I happened to be moving house at the time. But packing up box after box after box while listening to 10 days of Bach actually became a real pleasure. So much so that when the Bach stopped in the afternoon of Christmas Day, I genuinely felt bereft that I was no longer surrounded by the music of Bach. That was a very special experience. Um, Bank Holiday Easter Monday 2006, Wagner's The Ring in a Day, 8am till midnight. Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky, seven days in 2007. The Chopin Experience, a weekend in the spring of 2008. The Genius of Mozart, that was the first 12 days of 2011, every surviving note that Mozart wrote. The Spirit of Schubert, nine days in the spring of 2012, every surviving note of Schubert and the Brahms experience, five days in the autumn of 2014, but not every note, and included other composers too. Over on Radio 2, the BBC's most successful drive-time radio programme was hosted by John Dunn from 1976 to 1998. 
Dunn's easy way with his guests made him a valued interviewer, not least because he was always so well prepared. And in an exotic turn, in November 1996, John Dunn presented his Radio 2 programme from Antarctica. Right at the end of John Dunn's Radio 2 drive time stewardship, his programme won the 1998 Gold Sony Radio Award for the Best Drive Time Music Programme, a category that was more or less invented for Dunn to win. So let's hear three extracts from John Dunn's show in the 1980s. Finishing with Patrick Moore, the astronomer and amateur musician in 1989, the year in which I left the BBC as a full-time member of staff to go freelance. Before that, the singer and actor Art Garfunkel from 1988. And we'll begin with a slightly uncomfortable moment from broadcaster and writer Fritz Spiegel, who arranged the Radio 4 UK theme that we heard at the start of this lecture. This is from John Dunn's programme of Friday the 12th of November 1982. The following Monday was my first day working at the BBC. Fritz Spiegel's my guest this evening. Fritz, good evening to you. Hello, good evening. I get the impression, just turning over to pop music for a moment, that you're not too keen on pop. I seem to remember a letter that you wrote to the Times and you talked about pandering to the majority. I thought, what's wrong with that? Well, I think I have this theory that, that what everybody likes is bound to be bad. Uh, That's a very snobbish remark, It's a Fritz. terrible remark, but I think we ought to go the other way. I think it's, it's my fault. I, I have a, a closed pair of ears. They, they close up. I have a total allergy to the 20th century as far as music's concerned. There's some lovely tunes, but that constant hammering, mm. the drumming, that really, really goes right through my head. And if it happened in a factory... If, if that kind of noise happened in the factory, people would walk out, they, they, they would go on strike because of the constant hammering. Yet it seems to be permitted in pop music. Well, talking of the lovely melodies, you mentioned the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra in which you played the first flute for 15 years. Let's put the two together because we have the Dance of the Blessed Spirits, which seems rather appropriate, played by your good self, and here it is. Paul Simon, as I was saying, went to the same school. So were you actually friends before you were singing partners? Or did you become yes. friends through singing? No, well, the two were in sync. We met each other at age 11. And he was the funniest person in the neighborhood and the most lively. And so uh, both of us sort of locked onto each other as the live wires around here. But when, when the split came, was that a, a conscious decision on your part? Or was there some sort of a row that precipitated it? Uh, it was a conscious decision to do what comes natural and to, most of all, try and feel good about one's day-to-day -day life. We made that Bridge Over Troubled Water album with less than great goodwill in the studio. 
There was petty bickering and the things that happen when the juice of a cooperative and team becomes juiceless. And so, even though the results are good, and I'm proud of that album, I think it's quite musical, and I was sure that Paul felt the same way I did, which was, we don't care to do this again for a while when this is over. We seem to be more different than we are similar. So, musically, you have drifted apart, is what it really amounts to. Yeah, we're different. about the sky at night it began in 1957 was it, it began, your idea it began with an idea not from me but from paul johnstone the television producer he had the idea of creating a program which we we're going to call star map and altered straight away to the sky at night and the bbc approached me you see we actually began in april 1957 and uh, in october of the same year i was still doing it and of course up went sputnik one the first russian artificial satellite and I just happen to be the man in possession, which is why I'm there now. Mm. There is a little tune which you might well recognize. Marvelous piece of music that has introduced virtually, I think, every Sky at Night from the beginning. Yes, we've only used another tune once, and that was on our last Hawley's Comet program, where we played ourselves out with my own march, Hawley's Comet, that you played at the start of this program. Otherwise, we always use the same one, Sibelius at the Castle Gate, from the sweet Pelias and Melisande. And for many years, uh, BBC Radio was backed up by a magazine called The Listener. Here's the first edition from 1929. Uh, here's an edition from the late 70s, I think when I started uh, reading the magazine. Uh, the Listener magazine folded at the start of 1991. And The Listener covered a broad range of BBC programmes, but for a brief period, there was also a magazine devoted specifically to Radio 3 called Three Magazine. To quote from the first issue of Three Magazine from October 1982, Three was an attempt to interest those readers who do not automatically switch to the network as well as those for whom no other exists. The February 1984 edition asked its readers to help with market research by answering 28 questions ranging from whether the reader was a professional musician, through which types of radio programme the reader enjoyed, drama, classical music, modern music or talks and documentaries, to the name of their daily newspaper and whether they owned a video recorder or not, and that rather dates it. This was too little too late, however, and Three Magazine disappeared. In 1992, BBC Music Magazine was launched, and its most obvious selling point, a free classical music CD taped to its front cover. A dozen years later, staff were moved from London to Bristol in 2004 amid a flurry of protest. There were resignations and there was speculation as to the future of the publication. The demise of BBC Music Magazine was predicted by some 
yet it remains in circulation today, this month's edition featuring BBC Concert Orchestra recordings of two symphonies by Malcolm Arnold, a much underrated composer, in my opinion. Notwithstanding his visceral aversion to jazz, the BBC's founding father, Lord Reith, would be puzzled by the sheer variety of music broadcasting within BBC National Radio. Radios 1 to 4, 6 Music, 1 Extra, and the Asian Network all have their own specific input. Lord Reith might not have approved of the number of radio channels, but he might have approved of the range of musical styles within those channels. Radio 3 and 6 Music seem particularly to promote the idea of musical variety within their various ambits. Radio 3's service licence aligns itself to a core proposition of classical music, yet it also broadcasts jazz and world music and indeed ambient music. Radio 6 music aims to entertain lovers of popular music, but its service licence announces a remit to celebrate the alternative spirit in popular music from the 1960s to the present day then age starts to feature in service licences. Radio 1, contemporary music for 15 to 29-year-olds. Radio 1 Extra, contemporary black music for 15 to 24-year-olds. Radio 2, popular music to over 35s. And the Asian network to British Asians under 35. Now, much of that music can perfectly well be found freely on the internet. But for me, the beauty of BBC Radio's music output is that it's provided by people who care and who decide what to programme for how long and at what time of day. I like having music chosen for me by people who are passionate and knowledgeable. And I'm frequently surprised and comforted by how time-specific radio's output is. If you don't believe me, try listening to Radio 3 while you're in California or Melbourne and you'll find that the music choice may great. It won't be the rare time checks that give the game away. It will be the style and pace of presentation, the choice of music, and the length of pieces played. And they all reflect the time of day. One programme aimed at morning audiences is Desert Island Discs, with its gentle yet concisely edited interviews and short music choices to a total duration of 43 minutes. In 2019, Desert Island Discs was voted top BBC radio programme by industry experts. Today, I thought I'd give tiny snippets of all of the Prime Ministers in the period of this lecture, that's 1982 onwards. It shows many things, but I think what it really shows is that Desert Island Discs, while a fabulous show, is not a music programme as such. So, here goes... Seven Prime Ministers and their favourite music in three minutes. If I get to the country for the weekend and I just want to get away from politics, I go straight to the record player and I put on the Emperor Concerto, Beethoven. The first time Norma and I ever went out together was to a gala at Covent Garden. I'd had very little sleep. And the gala went on a very long time, and uh, Joan Sutherland came on to sing. 
the mad scene quite late at night. And as she began to sing it, I nodded off. And uh, how our relationship survived that, I'm never sure. The song, which is Memories of the Alhambra, is a song played by a friend of mine who is a, a flamenco guitarist, Paco Peña, and he, he very kindly tried to teach me how to play it. I'm not really expert enough to do it at all, but it is a, it's a beautiful piece. I stay in a village outside Edinburgh and look over both the Forth Bridge and the sea, and this bark, suite number three in D, gives all the sense of freedom that looking out on the sea and the hills on another side actually gives you. And when I came to London and went to one or two concerts when I first became an MP, bark, I really did think was superb. Well, this is Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan. I think this song is him at his most poetic, and I think the sound of the audience listening to him and responding would help me feel less alone on my desert She was married when they first met to a man four times her age. He left her penniless in a state of regret. It was time to bust out of the cage. The piece I've chosen, I've chosen because it's from The Magic Flute, which is my husband's favourite opera, and I think I'd like something that I can try to sing to. I can't sing, but on a desert island, on my own, it's not going to matter how I sing. But hearing somebody else sing this well is just sensational. This is Brahms' variational theme by Haydn. I particularly remember it because I was desperately ill as a child and my father came and played it endlessly on the record player when I was recovering. For years I didn't know what it was, but it was in the wrong sleeve in the album. I thought it was Elgar and it's not. It's Brahms. In 1998, actress Eileen Atkins, now Dame Eileen Atkins, admitted that she was an agnostic. But as her last choice on Desert Island Discs, she introduced one of my own recordings of religious music by saying that if there were a heaven, then this is what the angels would be singing there. Modesty forbids me from commenting in detail on Dame Eileen's excellent musical taste. Desert Island Discs has only ever played snippets of music, and one feature that was discussed by radio listeners before Classic FM took to the airwaves in 1992 
was the fact that this new commercial classical music station had stated its intention to broadcast individual moments from longer works. I don't want to hear bleeding chunks, I heard a London musician declare. If you're going to play a symphony, then play all of it, not just one movement. But Classic FM did indeed play bleeding chunks. Radio 3 only didn't do so because it chose to broadcast, for instance, short, self-contained musical items at times of day when the pace of the programme demanded it. But the crux is this. Radio 3 is a music station, whereas Classic FM is a lifestyle station. Scala Radio, which began broadcasting two years ago, is also a lifestyle station. Although these uh, three music stations are manifestly different from each other in their approach, they have one recent strand in common. Programmes about music for video games. This is a very recent radio phenomenon. Classic FM began high score from 2017. At its opening in March 2019, Scala Radio scheduled the console, and Radio 3's Sound of Gaming followed later that same year. Now, these programmes are all slanted towards younger listeners. Now, as a young person, I listened to Pied Piper on Radio 3 in the early 1970s. Uh, its presenter, David Munro, would be 78 now had he not been taken away from us so long ago. In January 1994, Music Machine began, and it ran for five years with Tommy Pearson and Verity Sharp as the lead presenters. Tommy Pearson promised, if it's music, it'll be here, from New Age to Stone Age and from reggae to rock and roll. And the Radio Times billed the first programme. Today, Tommy sets his pulse racing when he talks to Radio 1 DJ Annie Nightingale about what music sets her feet tapping and asks conductor Richard Hickox why he isn't just a human metronome. And the signature tune was brilliantly appropriate powerful, serendipitous and youthful by the late, great Steve Martland. One thing that younger listeners will take for granted is DAB. Digital audio broadcasting was introduced in 1995. For the record, I have DAB radios in every room except the bathroom where there's a waterproof analogue radio. Here's a snippet of Ravel's virtuoso violin piece Tsigan, as heard on Radio 3's Composer of the Week three weeks ago.
as I say, I have a waterproof analog radio in the bathroom, a newish DAB radio in the bedroom, and an old DAB radio in the kitchen. Why am I telling you all this? Because the way I listen at home, some really fun things can happen. Analog radio is essentially immediate, and my two digital radios have different buffering speeds. So, on the 26th of March, a few weeks ago, this is how I heard Ravel's Tsigan. I like Saturdays on Radio 3, um, record review, obviously. Uh, Music Matters, a magazine programme presented by Tom Service since 2003. Tom Service, a Gresham professor of music. Then saxophonist Jess Gillam hosts This Classical Life, in which she discusses music with other young musicians. And then two hours of inside music, where, in a different format, more established composers and performers talk about their lives and illustrate them with musical choices. Now, Inside Music, I think, is a real triumph of radio. It's unscripted, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. Uh, The celebrity or the professional musician is chosen, and then they choose music, and gradually the programme is hammered into shape, and the narrative is kind of teased out. And then the presenter is interviewed... And ultimately, the interviewer's questions are all cut out. The drawback of this is it takes an immense amount of time to come up with something that sounds coherent and natural. But I believe that Inside Music does this. It's an extraordinary programme. It takes a long time to make, but it sounds very, very natural. And it also gets round the problem of people who aren't uh, specialist scriptwriters not being able to do very well. Um, anyway, here's uh, just a tiny extract from Inside Music uh, recently. Um, This is Julius Drake, the accompanist uh, Julius Drake, showing us the very clear influence of Schumann on Nina Simone. This is a song, My Baby Just Cares For Me, and you can hear her passion for Bach in the riff that happens in the middle of the song. But I think it's also quite clear that she knew her Schumann. Now, just like that, um, Liederkreis from 1840 and My Baby Just Cares For Me 
from 1930 covered in 1957. The sort of thing I might say uh, on Radio 3, a lot of use of dates. I'm often using dates when lecturing or broadcasting about music. But in the late 1990s, a memo was circulated in which the powers that be in Radio 3 voiced concern that Radio 3 presenters were in danger of complicating matters by using too many dates. As the then presenter of Radio 3's weekly programme, Choirworks, I struggled with the suggestion that the use of dates might alienate listeners. My colleague at Radio 3 and at the Royal Academy of Music, Gerard McBurney, was engaged in the composition of a proms commission when the memorandum arrived. McBurney's composition was called Letter to Paradise, and it was a setting for singer and orchestra of a Soviet-era letter. Given the memo about not using dates on Radio 3, McBurney decided neither to begin his piece with the letter's salutation, dear Raisa, Ilinisha, nor with the opening of the actual message. Instead, the bass soloist declaimed, albeit in Russian, 2nd of November 1931, which had a few of us rolling in the aisles of the Royal Albert Hall in July 1998. It's the BBC's centenary next year. That's why I thought I'd get in now, before everybody's had enough of BBC 100 or BBC C, to use a Roman numeral, or whatever it's going to be called. Some of Radio 3 and Radio 6 music will apparently move to Salford next year. And then the licence is up for renewal in 2027. Because the BBC is a public service broadcaster, there will always be howling dissatisfaction with the BBC's music output. For instance, I personally would like to hear more folk music, even more experimental music, and much more pre-Baroque music. Yet, for some people, those would be the very genres that they would complain about more than toothache. So, I like to think that the remit of a public service broadcaster might be to promote interest in good music, irrespective of genre. The concept was clearly stated by jazz legend Duke Ellington. There are simply two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. But that presupposes that we all agree on what constitutes good music. The presence of jazz itself on Radio 3 has its critics, and some Radio 3 listeners find the broadcasting of pop music, or even allusion to pop music, inappropriate on their network. With an annual licence fee of £159, and with the over-75s again having to buy their licences, it's hardly surprising that people call for value for money. Although it is worth stating that since February 1971, you haven't needed a license to listen solely to the BBC's radio output. Many call for a reform of the license fee model. At the moment, it seems that the TV license is here to stay because of the lack of an appropriate broadband infrastructure in the UK, without which digital reform would be problematic. So 2038 seems to be the earliest year from which BBC funding might change drastically. At which point, not only would the funding of eight interactive television channels, 10 radio networks, over 50 local television and radio services, and the BBC's online services be reviewed. But the status of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, BBC National Orchestra of Wales, BBC Philharmonic, BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, and the BBC Concert Orchestra would face review, assuming that those orchestras will still be making music 17 years from now. 
That's not to mention Britain's only full-time professional vocal ensemble, the BBC Singers, the BBC Big Band, and the amateur BBC Symphony Chorus and National Chorus of Wales. And the Proms, the largest and longest-running music festival in the world. So the BBC will celebrate its centenary in 2022 amidst a clamour of criticism and call for reform. The BBC has embraced digital technology and has thereby exposed itself to commercial values and comparison. In the same way that the BBC's radiophonic workshop made itself redundant by helping to develop electronic techniques that may now be emulated on free computer software in the comfort of your own home or on the bus, the whole BBC itself may have paved the way for the dismantlement of its public service remit. I tend to take myself out of the equation when musing about the future of BBC Radio, but I do consider the radio needs of my five-year-old daughter, which are seemingly none, or zero, as she herself would say. When my radio choices of music by, for instance, Masho or Monteverdi or Haydn or Josquin or Debussy or The Beatles or Sondheim or Bellowhead or Squarepusher invade her musical space, she either turns up the YouTube volume on her purloined smartphone or finds Netflix or CBBS on our television. Radio gets in her way, whereas radio is my way. Who knows what she will feel by 2038 when she'll be in her early 20s. Whatever happens, I envy her current state of radio naivety. She has it all to come. And one thing's for sure, when the German physicist Heinrich Hertz reported in 1887 that I do not think that the wireless waves I have discovered will have any practical application. Hertz was dead wrong. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Summerlee, for that fascinating lecture with amazing clips and um, very, very lively and interesting and no doubt... Um, there are some questions. Um, the first is this. Uh, the USP of BBC Radio, to me, is the variety of speech radio, the quiz shows, the dramas, short stories, news and such like. Do you feel this is now old-fashioned and that music is the future? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, in a purely self-interested way, uh, I spend, I shouldn't, but I spend almost as much time speaking about music as I do making it myself. Um, uh, but I do think the two go well uh, in tandem. And I do think that's one of the things that the BBC does very well. And it's one of the reasons I'm drawn um, to Radio 3 and to Radio 6 music, because they do actually give you an insight into the music by explaining what's going on. That said, I'm also a devotee who isn't of BBC Radio 4, which is almost entirely a speech network, although I have made music programmes um, for Radio 4 as well. And it's interesting because I think I approach making a, a programme for Radio 4, a speech network, differently to the way I make it um, for Radio 3. But I don't think anything that involves anybody explaining what's going on in music is old-fashioned. But then that's just me. That's why I was drawn to radio in the first place. When I was there in the 1970s, before the internet, I used to get up, set the, set the alarm clock for seven in the morning um, so that I could hear Radio 3 and I jotted down 
what was being said by the continuity announcers as they uh, introduced all this music. I looked at the Radio Times, I went to our local library, and I got out scores. I learned at the foot of Radio 3, and it was the speech as much as anything else. And when I owned a cassette player, I'd set the tape on that, and then I'd transcribe what people were saying about the music. That's how I did it. There was no internet. And I only had a few books and the ones I could borrow from, borrow from the public library. So, no, I don't think that the idea, if that's the question, I don't think that, 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 that speech and music is an outmoded pattern. It can't be. I mean, if you're suggesting that everybody just wants to sit and watch or listen to YouTube and just hear track after track after track of their favourite thing, I don't. I don't think that's the future at all. I think people will always be curious. Some people will always be curious about all sorts of music. Great. Very good. Very interesting. What are, um, are you familiar with some of the excellent work done by BBC local radio in the nations, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland? Um, and do you think this reflects their local music scenes? Take the floor on Radio Scotland, for instance. I'm afraid I don't. And, of course, I, I, I would, a few years ago, I would have had an excuse for that because I would say, well, look, I can't receive uh, Radio Scotland because I, could, I can perfectly well uh, receive Radio Scotland uh, at the moment, but I don't tend to, so I can't comment on that. But I do know that when I was growing up, there were some fascinating uh, programmes on Radio Stoke, where I'm from, that always um, surprised me. And I remember a series on Duke Ellington in the, in the 70s, which, again, turned me on to that style of jazz. So um, I'm not excluding in any way um, the wonderful work that local radio does, but I just don't happen to listen very much, and, and particularly not, uh, not in the other nations, I'm afraid. Uh, there's another question that's just come in as you were speaking, saying, um, do you think that local radio is potentially under threat? Um, local radio is, I suppose, increasingly under threat, isn't it, from, from sort of global concerns um, and the internet. But, I mean, it can't... I mean, I th well, here's an interesting one. I mean, how is the world going to change when and if we come out of this thing? I suspect that actually there will be a return to certain levels of community spirit and uh, community practice, uh, and at which point things like uh, local radio and television services, I think, are going to become even more important. I would certainly not want to see them, uh, see them disappear. But um, as I say, my, my local radio when I was growing up was actually a very important thing to me. This is very much linked to the next question, uh, which is, in future, how much of the BBC's music output do you think will be accessed offline via apps like Sounds rather than via radio? Well, I use BBC Sounds a lot. There's a, I can't remember the figure for how much material is on BBC Sounds. Is it sort of 80,000 hours? I'm making that... It's, it's an awful lot of music. BBC Sounds is utterly, utterly fantastic. And when, uh, when I've searched it, I've generally searched it for stuff that I'm trying to research. So I accept that I'm not completely normal. So I use BBC Sounds as a rather specific way of researching musical topics. But I'm still going to be drawn to the idea of pressing the button on the radio and not quite know what's coming out of it. I love that aspect of radio, not exactly knowing. And sometimes, because in our house we listen to different things, different uh, radio networks anyway. So when I switch on uh, the radio in the morning, I'm never quite sure which radio station is going to come out of it anyway. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I would fain see that go. So I personally don't believe that radio is in any way dead. 
I've kept um, till last, the last question, uh, the most tricky you'd be pleased to hear. Oh, good. (laughs) Would Professor Summerlee risk trying to define what Ellington meant by good music and the other kind? Well, risk it if you like. I don't suppose, uh, have I thought about it? Well, I suppose I've thought about it for my entire life. Have I got an answer? Not really, but I'll try and think of one on the fly. To me... uh, It's difficult to say, because one thing that I think uh, we could probably all agree on that defines good music is its lasting quality. Now, you don't know if something's going to last for a very long time. Um, It's obvious, but, you know, Henry Purcell's been around for 300 years, and when the BBC Radio 3 played all of his music over the course of 1995, it was obvious that that was an absolutely extraordinary composer whose music had survived 300 years. So longevity is one thing. Of course, you can't really apply that to Ellington. He hasn't been dead for long enough, as it were, although maybe starting to come into that zone where you think, yep, Ellington's still very much around um, with us. So there's there's longevity, I think, is important. Um, To a certain extent, how much uh, you write is also important. Some people revere composers that have written an awful lot, some composers revere com- uh, some some people revere composers that haven't written very much at all and crystallise uh, their music into a few short works. You can argue it either way. So I think how much you've written, uh, you can argue either way. But I think that becomes important to what is good or not. Um, but ultimately, for me, it's uh, I can only really assess that when I perform the music myself. Now I know I'm fortunate because. I'm a performing musician. I spend a lot of my time performing music. But I can tell you whether I think a composer or a piece is good or bad, certainly by comparison. And I'll tell you where I've really, really found it over the years is when you're making a recording. When you make a recording, you feel a little bit like a mad scientist because you go into a studio or a church for, let's say, two days for four three-hour sessions and you want to put down just over an hour's worth of music. And you have to repeat the same bit over and over and over again. There are certain composers at the end of two days when you are very happy, as Art Garfunkel said like that, you know, I love that, Bridge Over Troubled Water. It was quite a, quite a musical product, I thought. But at the end of that, he was happy to shut the book. When I've made recordings of some composers, after two days, I'm very, very happy to shut the book. But just taking the example of... Uh, making a record of a composer like Henry Purcell. We just didn't want it to stop. And it was a real problem for the producer, because the producer, OK, we've got that track, move on. And we go, no, we don't want to. We just, can we just do that one more time? And so I think the recording studio, so repetition of music, I think will give you a good idea of how good it is. It's not the only thing. So that's the thing, longevity, how much people have written, and just how much you're prepared to expose yourself to it. If somebody said you only had to have one band or one composer for the rest of your life, which would that be? I think if you had to make a choice, stupid choice, if you had to make a choice, you would probably define that composer or that band as good. Professor Summerlee, thank you very much indeed.